Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. You're listening to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. This morning, for the third time in eight years, the Supreme Court is again reviewing a constitutional challenge to the Affordable Care Act. This time, the Republican state officials bringing the case have argued that Congress's elimination of a penalty for failure to comply with the act's insurance mandate renders the entire law unconstitutional. The arguments take place before the most conservative bench the Supreme Court has seen in decades and amid a raging pandemic that has left millions jobless and without health insurance. In this segment, we talk about how the justices appear to be leaning and what's at stake. Joining us is Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent with Kaiser Health News and host of the podcast, What the Health, and welcome back to Forum. Julie Rovner, good to have you. Thank you for having me. And we also have Rory Little with us, Professor UC Hastings College of the Law and former attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice. And welcome, Rory Little. Thanks, Michael. Always happy to be here. And pleased to have you here. Well, this is the third Scopus case in eight years, as I said in the introduction. And it's been uh, moved forward by Republican state officials, attorneys general who are bringing the case. Uh, What's at stake here as far as you're concerned, Julie Rodner? Well, the entire Affordable Care Act is at stake because that's what the plaintiffs are charging, that when Congress in 2017, as part of the tax bill, uh, reduced the penalty for not having insurance to zero, they inadvertently or on purpose eliminated the uh, justification that the Supreme Court had in 2012 that allowed the law to stand. And so they say the entire law has to fall uh, because of that. Uh, The justices, I would say, suggest, didn't seem to be buying that argument. Well, in fact, that argument, uh, Roy, let me go to you on it. It gets into this whole concept of severability that I mentioned as we came into this segment. And it's uh, a little bit in the weeds, but uh, it means, in effect, that the Supreme Court has a number of options in terms of what they can uh, come to in the way of an agreement here. Um, sort of spell that out for us, if you could, the options that I'm talking about. Well, so there's there's three questions in front of the court. The first one is whether the plaintiffs even have a right to proceed. And even on that question, there was some doubt. Um, but then you get to this Uh, Let's try to put it this way. It's kind of like a small pea under a big pile of mattresses. Uh, You know, there's this individual mandate which said people have to buy insurance or they have to pay a pretty low penalty. That was invalidated by the Supreme Court um, back in 2012 um, as as a constitutional command, but they said it's a tax. So then what happened? Congress uh, zeroed out the tax. They said, well, you still have to buy insurance, but you don't have to pay a penalty of anything. The penalty shall be zero. So now nobody's hurt by this requirement, even if they abide by it. Um, The question is, if that's no longer valid because it's a zero penalty, does that mean you have to strike down the entire statute? 
Um, and the precedents really don't support the idea that you should strike down the entire statute. And I've been saying this for a long time. Everybody sort of made a big deal out of Justice Barrett coming onto the court and it could make a difference. But Justice Kavanaugh today said the same thing. He said, boy, that doesn't sound consistent with our precedents. So today it sounds like you have a majority of justices who will either say there's no standing or they'll say you don't have to invalidate the entire act just because of this one provision. Yeah, we have three uh, judges appointed by President Trump who have not even ruled on the Affordable Care Act. And uh, I believe uh, at this point, uh, well, we can talk about this a little as the program progresses. But uh, as you say, this goes back to 2012 when the court upheld the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act's penalty uh, on individuals who lack health coverage and tied it to the individual mandate. And uh, let me go back to you, Julie Rodner. Uh, let's talk about this in terms of pre-existing conditions and who can be affected if the court indeed rules against the Affordable Care Act. That's right. I mean, there's obviously what everyone has suggested is the low probability and probably lower now after the oral argument that the court would strike down the entire law. But one of the other possibilities, and this was the original position of the Trump Justice Department, is that if the individual mandate as it remains, which they say is an unconstitutional command to buy health insurance, because it used to be a choice, buy health insurance or pay this penalty, and the penalty is now zero, um, if that is unconstitutional, would you not then have to strike down, if not the whole law, then the things that are most immediately tied to that? And it happens that the things that are most immediately tied to that are the protections for pre-existing conditions, arguably some of the most uh, popular elements of the law. And that's because that was the original deal uh, under which the Affordable Care Act was passed. Insurance companies said, we can't be required to sell to people who are sick because then only sick people will buy insurance. There has to be some kind of incentive or coercion or encouragement for healthy people to buy insurance too. And that was the source of the penalty. Well, with no penalty, uh, as it turns out, People are people. Healthy people are buying insurance anyway. Uh, as as Donald Verrilli, who uh, who was arguing for the House of Representatives and argued the case in 2012 and again in 2015, said it turns out that the the carrots are working really well even without the stick. And COVID nineteen would come under the rubric of a pre existing condition. Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, obviously, uh, insurance companies themselves would decide, you know, what is and isn't a pre-existing condition. But but certainly with what we've seen uh, with people having uh, with such a new disease, we don't know what the long term ramifications are. But there are enough people who are having sort of lingering effects that that would clearly be considered a pre-existing condition. And it's kind of ironic, uh, Roy Little, I think, uh, to put it mildly, that the Trump administration says it supports pre-existing condition protection, but is... Uh, Supporting this lawsuit seeks to overturn the act, uh, so-called <laughs> well, Obamacare. Yeah. yeah, President Trump was never able to answer that question. How can you say you're going to preserve everything while your solicitor general is arguing to the Supreme Court that the entire act should be struck down? And, and you know, the president kept saying, well, we've got another plan coming. You know, one of these days I'll release it. Uh, and the Texas uh, attorney general today seemed to say that. He said, well, if you strike it down, the practical consequences could be alleviated by Congress. Uh, but nobody really believes Congress has the will these days, the partisan Congress, uh, to, to pass another Affordable Care Act. It was a pretty unique moment in town. Julia right that this would have a huge co uh, consequence for Americans. Uh, and it was great to hear Don Verrilli arguing this time for the House of Representatives. He was the Solicitor General under Obama who argued for the Obama administration back in 2012 
that the act should be upheld. And he won that case. Uh, and it's nice to see him back again, arguing for the same proposition today. And Julie, the ruling uh, wouldn't be expected before the session ends on June 21st. Healthcare remain fully in effect, in effect until that ruling is rendered? Yes, unquestionably. We don't know when they're going to, if it, if it turns out to be a really easy case, we could see it sooner, although almost certainly not until 2021. And let's look at uh, the court in terms of the justices and what's likely, uh, particularly at this point. We've got a six to three majority uh, of conservatives, Rory, and they did uphold Obamacare back in 2012, as you said, and in 2015, but only four of the justices from those uh, majorities remain. So we have a kind of different configuration here in some to some degree. And uh, what are your expectations? As you said earlier, there's been a lot of speculation about the new justice, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, in hearings. Uh, she said she was not hostile to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, there's a good deal of skepticism about her. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely a different court than it was with three new Trump justices uh, Justice Byron White said a long time ago, every time you put a new justice on the court, it's like putting your foot in the river. You can never put your foot in the river, same river, twice. Um, so the court is different. Um, and people are looking to see what the three Trump justices will do. I thought Barrett today um, actually did not tip her hand completely on the severability question, which is really the most important question. Um, I thought Kavanaugh actually made it clear that he thinks this is severable under the precedents unless they were to invent a new theory. Uh, I also heard Justice Thomas say some things that he's a little bit skeptical about the standing of the plaintiffs. And of course, he's, he's not been a generous justice in the past about standing. Um, and, and so, you know, partisan politics really, you would hope, play uh, no role in applying these so-called neutral doctrines. So it would be nice to see Justice Thomas adhere to his prior position in other cases that standing should be uh, quite uh, rigidly enforced before you go to the merits. Um, and then, you know, Justice Roberts was the justice who upheld the act in 2012. Uh, and he, I assume, would go that same way today. Uh, they were all very cognizant of the practical consequences. Um, and, you know, it, to some extent, that should be Congress's problem, and the Supreme Court shouldn't be deciding those practical consequence issues. Well, I've given up trying to read the mind uh, of our chief executive, um, but nevertheless, he seems to have the feeling that these three justices should essentially go the way he wants to go, not only in terms of the election and what he's calling fraud, but also pres presumably with respect to the Affordable Care Act, which he has been uh, talking about essentially vanquishing and, and getting away. Uh, I want to hear from you, our listeners, though. We're talking about the Supreme Court's hearing on the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and if you have some thoughts, some opinions, or some questions, we welcome your involvement in the program. Uh, the latest court challenge, the Affordable Care Act, if you're receiving benefits under the act, what are your thoughts and what are your experiences? You can join us now, and I invite you to be part of the program. The toll-free number to do that, 866-733-6786. Join us now toll-free at 866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. I'm looking at a tweet now from Lou who writes, I hope the Supreme Court sees the vileness of taking away health care to millions of Americans, including me and my partner during a pandemic. You know, where does, where does empathy play a role here, Rory Little, or does it? <laughs> Where does empathy play a role? 
you know, I think it has to play a role. These are these justices are human beings. Uh, and importantly, they have life tenure under the Constitution, which means once the president appoints them, the president can do nothing about what they may rule in, in various cases. Uh, you know, and, and, and people thought Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts would vote uh, with the conservatives, but he voted to uphold the act uh, eight years ago. So uh, I do think they are, it's not so much empathy as they are aware that their rulings affect people in a very real and direct way. And so the large question for them is, should we be doing this as the judiciary or should we be leaving this to the political forces? It's the same sort of question, frankly, that comes up with election disputes, um, which is another thing the Supreme Court has been kind of dipping their toe in recently. So I do think it affects them. Yeah, and I said, I think this is a president who sees things in terms of transaction. As I said, I don't like to read his mind, but sees uh, uh, the three justices that he appointed as being perhaps uh, inclined to, he would think, support him in whatever he wants. Uh, here's a question from Harvey. I'm going to go to you on this, Julie Robner. Harvey wants to know if the ACA, that is the Affordable Care Act, stands as is with no penalty. What are the implications for funding of the program? Uh, well, not very many. It turns out, I mean, the... the the tax, such as it was, didn't raise a lot of money. Um, there are a lot of other taxes in the law, um, some of which have actually been repealed, but there's still a lot of other taxes in the law uh, that raise money. Um, the, the real issue there uh, is the whether or not the in the individual marketplaces, the exchanges, uh, would be able to stand if healthy people weren't more strongly encouraged to sign up. Well, it turns out that the subsidies, and I know in California, they're even larger than in the rest of the country, that help people afford their premiums have turned out to be much more important in terms of getting people to sign up than avoiding the penalty, which really wasn't really that big. So it probably, if, if the court, as many people are predicting, decides that without the penalty, the individual mandate itself is unconstitutional, but the rest of the law can stand, it really won't have any practical effect. Let me bring in our callers, and we begin with Shanta, who joins us. Good morning, Shanta. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. So, so I am absolutely a beneficiary of the Affordable Care Act. I am self-employed, and I have two young children, and it's the only way I can get health insurance. And before this, I worked for really small companies, and um, I didn't have enough hours to get health insurance from, from all of them. I could, but then I couldn't work for the others. I, I mean, my business has boomed this year. I'm very fortunate that what I do is, is actually of help right now during the COVID crisis, but I could not have done that if I did not have insurance through um, through the exchange. A comment uh, on this call, if you would, Julie Robner? You know, this is one of the most important purposes of the Affordable Care Act. Um, a lot of people were stuck in jobs that were not appropriate for them, they did not necessarily like or they were not particularly good at, because it was the only way they could get health insurance. And one of the goals of the Affordable Care Act was to encourage people to go out on their own, start their own businesses. But a lot of those people, particularly if they'd had pre-existing conditions, could not have purchased insurance on the individual insurance market. Many insurers would not sell to people who were not pristinely and provably healthy. Um, and so that kept a lot of people, uh, and, it, and it really sort of put a bit of a throttle on the economy 
economy. And in the ensuing 10 years since the law passed, really six years since the law has been in full effect, um, I hear from lots and lots of people who've been able to go out on their own or start a business or retire early or do things that they could not have otherwise done because they would not have been able to get health insurance. Let me bring another caller on, and that's Aaron in Oakland. Aaron, join us. Uh, Good morning. So my question is, um, if we view this as a giant institutional game of rock, paper, scissors, um, if we had an adverse ruling by the Supreme Court, what would prevent Congress from just reinstating a a symbolic $5 penalty on the individual mandate, and then wouldn't that revert us to the prior Supreme Court ruling? Some thoughts from you on that, Rory Little? Well, that's been suggested. It's a really good question, Aaron. Um, I guess what would prevent Congress from doing it would be partisan politics and, and nothing else, right? We've, we still don't know who will control the Senate. Uh, there are uh, people who have towed the line uh, on this side of against the Affordable Care Act. I'm not sure anybody who's against the act is really against all of these other provisions. So maybe there'd be political will to do that. And, and yes, I think that was one way to cure it. Um, and I know that the uh, Biden transition team is already looking at ways to uh, adjust the Affordable Care Act in case there's a negative ruling here, uh, or even if there isn't. And Rory, always uh, welcome on the program, a little levity. Uh, there were a couple of uh, entertaining moments uh, during the arguments this morning, both centering on Breyer. Could you talk about those? Yeah, well, well I have to say, uh, poor Justice Breyer. I love Justice Breyer. He has a hard time with the technology and they're doing their oral arguments by phone. I think not by Zoom, I think by secured phone lines. And at one point he was asked for his question today, there was some dead silence. Then they said, Justice Breyer, Justice Breyer, and there's some more silence. And then he said, can you hear me? And it just sounded like the Zoom calls that so many of us are having today, where we say, can you hear me? Your audio is frozen. Uh, They finally did come back to him and it was all done in good humor, although the Chief Justice initially, I think was a little impatient. The other moment was when Justice Breyer said, to the Solicitor General, uh, when you say to your family that you shall do something, are you commanding them or is it just a a request? And Breyer seemed to say, well, in my family, it's really just a request. And the Solicitor General said, well, in my family, when I say they shall do something, it's a command followed by a penalty. Uh, (laughs) It was kind of bringing this argument down to the level of everybody's family. Thank you for that, Rory. Uh, Also, I'm going to ask you to respond to a tweet from a listener named Michael, who, uh, as we come up on the break here, says, one admirable trait of Justice Kennedy was his concern for the consequences of the court's decision, not just what they thought the Constitution literally meant. And I believe uh, you were one of his, uh, you worked with Justice Kennedy under him, didn't you? Well, uh, no, uh, fortunately or otherwise, I'm too old for that. He was not quite on the court when I was uh, a clerk there. Um, but let's, uh, let's be clear that Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch both clerked for Justice Kennedy, and they have some uh, loyalty, I think, to his memory and to his style. Uh, and I don't think, I, Justice Kavanaugh in particular, uh, as negative as some people's images are of Justice Kavanaugh, he seems to have a pretty practical feel for the way these rulings are going to go. Uh, he's more like the Chief Justice than he is, say, Justice Thomas or Alito. Uh, and so, you know, I think the listener's right. Justice Kennedy would have said, well, what about the consequences here? Yeah, he was a compromiser. And again, we're talking about the Supreme Court's hearing on the Affordable Care Act with Rory Little and Julie Grovner. And you, our listeners, questions about this latest court challenge? 
Join us, 866-733-6786. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. And we're talking about the Supreme Court's hearing on the Affordable Care Act here on Forum with Julie Rodner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News and host of the podcast, What the Health, and Rory Little, Professor at UC Hastings College of the Law and former attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice. If you have questions about the latest court challenge to the Affordable Care Act or if you're receiving benefits under the act, we'd like to hear your thoughts and your experiences, and you can give us a call now toll-free at 866-733-6786 to join the program. Again, that's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. Let me bring another caller on, and that's Mohammed. Good morning. Hi, uh, good morning. This is Mohammed Kumar from San Jose, and uh, I just want to ask about the uh, Affordable Care Act. Uh, I had uh, two of my children, uh, with, you know, covered under the act. My first child was uh, actually going to put me in debt because she was just uh, my, she was just conceived before the the act became a law. And my wife, you know, you know, we were immigrants at the time, and you know, or we were new to the country, and we didn't know. Uh, that, you know, pregnancy is a pre-existing condition. So that was a surprise. But anyway, so I am aware of all the positive effects and positive um, impact of the act on, on the community and, and, uh, and the citizens. Uh, but also I want to know what's the conservative um, argument here. You know, what's the negative impact on on the Americans of, of the Affordable Care Act. It's a big question, Mohammed. though, as we said earlier, 20 million people would be uninsured. But uh, let's get a reaction from you, Julie Rovner. Well, of course, there's the legal argument. Um, one of the, the Texas Solicitor General who argued the case for the 18 Republican-led states that are, that are suing said that, well, because there's a requirement to buy health insurance, there are people who are enrolling in the Medicaid program, and that's costing the state extra money. Uh, and then there are a couple of individual plaintiffs who were saying, because there's a requirement to buy health insurance, even though there's no penalty, they felt compelled to buy it anyway. Um, and that's costing the federal government money. So it's mostly, it's a, it's sort of a libertarian argument that's been the conservative argument all along, that the government shouldn't be uh, requiring people to, to buy insurance. Although it's, you know, the, the question in this case is, if there's no penalty and no way of enforcing it, is it really a requirement or not? And that's actually what the justice has spent a considerable amount of time today uh, asking both the, the people defending and challenging the law. Well, the other argument uh, I think we have to lay out here to some extent, Roy Little, is uh, that the individual mandate can't be severed from the rest of the law, isn't it? 
Yeah, you know, Congress is a mess sometimes. And when they legislate, particularly with a statute of this length and complexity, they don't always do a perfect job. So they zeroed out the penalty and they made it pretty clear they didn't want to, you know, repeal the entire ACA and they didn't have the votes to do that anyway. But they left in place a finding, a congressional finding from back in 2008. And that finding says this mandate is uh, essential to the success of the entire statute. Now, it turns out that's wrong, uh, that in fact, without the mandate having a penalty at all, people are still buying insurance, as Julie said. Um, but this finding makes it sound like, oh, gee, maybe Congress thought it was essential. So that's the argument. We should rely on what Congress said in its finding. We should strike down the entire bill because this is an essential part of it. Uh, that's just not true today, factually. Uh, and it's also pretty likely not true in Congress's intention. They just didn't clean it up as well as they should have. Can I, I can I add something to that? Yeah, actually, ahead, um, it's not so much a Congress. I mean, they do do things sloppily sometimes. But in this case, Congress kind of had its hand tied, uh, hands tied behind its back by um, the procedure that they use, the budget procedure they use to pass the tax bill. They couldn't take out the mandate. They could only do things that affected the budget. Otherwise, they would have needed 60 votes. So they couldn't go to those other they couldn't touch those other parts of the Affordable Care Act unless they had 60 votes, which they didn't. That's why they couldn't repeal the Affordable Care Act, because they didn't have 60 votes. They were trying to do, as it turned out, they didn't have 50 votes either earlier in the year when they tried to do that. But some of this was simply the the, the congressional rules under which Congress was operating when it did this. And this is not meant in uh, a partisan vein. It's just a fact that the Republican leadership, uh, either the Trump administration or the Republicans in the Congress under Mitch McConnell, have not come up with any alternative plan to what they call Obamacare and what they have vilified as Obamacare and are trying to strike down here in terms of the attorneys general who have brought this case. Let me bring another caller on. Jack joins us. Jack, welcome. Hey, it's Zach with a Z from San Jose. Um, so I lost my job in January, uh, partially due to the pandemic, and I have a very treatable but chronic disease that uh, I would not have been able to afford the medication for without having uh, able to get health care coverage under the ACA through uh, my state's marketplace. I was in Colorado at the time uh, and subsidies. Uh, but the other thing I would say is this a market uh, incentive for me to do so, because had I not gotten insurance, even without that chronic condition, it would have been harder for me later on to uh, if my if I'd gone more than two months without coverage. So I, I really feel like any of these arguments that are being put before the Supreme Court just really lack a lot of merit, let alone standing. Well, Zach, I thank you for letting us know about your experience and for bringing to light your thoughts. And I want to get another caller on quickly here. That's Phil, who's been waiting patiently, joining us from San Rafael. Phil, good morning. Good morning. Um, I was, uh, I've always been self-employed. I had pre-existing conditions. Um, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer literally just a few months after the Affordable Care Act was enacted. And um, I've always really struggled listening to the propaganda machine pumping out, as you referred to, the vilification of Obamacare, um, that it's bad for you. We're politicians running on a policy. We want to save you from this bad Obamacare. Um, and the thing that I think is so poignant right now is that the power of the misinformation shifting the electoral balance is at play with election counts. And um, it seems to keep coming up. And one of the one of the things I keep thinking of, even though I believe firmly in free speech, is that 
it's it's not okay to shout fire when you're in a movie theater. And there's something about the distortion of the actual facts, in this case, something that saves people's lives, including my own. I would not be able to make this call into your program if there wasn't Obamacare, because I wouldn't be here. So well, I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you called. And it brings up a question about just... Uh... Get back to that idea of calling fire in a theater, and uh, there are people's lives at stake here. I mean, we can't forget that, uh, and that's an important point to really put in the center of things. Julie Rovner? Yeah, and you know, it's not just the, the immediate 23 million or so people who get their care directly through the Affordable Care Act. It's lots of people with insurance um, who have access to preventive care at no upfront cost, whose adult children are being left on their health plans, people who are taking less expensive copies of expensive biologic drugs that were not that did not exist were not allowed to be approved prior to the affordable care act i mean there's an enormous amount to this law that really isn't even connected to what we think of as kind of the centerpiece which is the helping people buy their own insurance and a question from a listener named rosie if i go to you professor little if she wants to know if the court kills obamacare does that mean the elimination of pre-existing condition coverage for everyone even those who receive insurance from their employer or are on medicare well uh, you know julie may be better on that but let me just say pre-existing conditions is a, is a something that the insurance companies invented right just to, to keep the premiums uh and, and the payments low they said, well, we're not going to cover pre-existing conditions. It's unclear what would happen if you wiped out the uh, Affordable Care Act requirement that insurance companies give insurance to people without excluding them for pre-existing conditions. Uh, but it's likely that they would go back to something like that. Uh, Congress might uh, cure things in, in a number of different ways. Uh, and so the impact on everyone, if this case were to strike down the ACA, uh, is unclear to some extent. Uh, it is a little ironic. It's it's almost like President Trump is is sowing uh, more confusion in the last couple months of his his tenure uh, by arguing that this should be thrown out because Phil from San Rafael, which is my hometown, uh, you know, he's right that this is a vilification of uh, a policy which actually uh, benefits so many, uh, really millions of people. Um, and, and to strike it down based on this tiny little uh, zero penalty would be just absurd. Yeah, I'd like to hear from you, Julie Rodner, if I go back to you. Uh, yes. So um, the, there are pre-existing condition protections in Medicare and Medicaid, and those would not be affected. They predate the Affordable Care Act. But there is some question about whether or not it would make pre-existing condition protections. Excuse me, I have a new puppy who's just woken up from a nap. Yapping um, away, those, yeah. yeah. Whether those pre-existing condition protections from HIPAA, which was a bill passed in 1996, um, would be affected. And it's possible that they would too. And those are the pre-existing condition protections for people with employer insurance, which is still most of the American public. So it would definitely uh, be a, a big open legal question. Um, sorry, I'm a dog lover. I'm just wondering what kind of puppy you have. Uh, she's a corgi. She'll be six months next week. Yeah, I was trying to figure it breed by, by bark, but that's very difficult. Uh, uh, congratulations on getting a new puppy, and we'll bring another caller on. Lisa joins us next. Lisa, hi. Hi, yes. I'm a union member, and um, I, I find that uh, the, the reason that we're... I find it really ridiculous that the American people would continue to be to settle for having a... a, a 
the ACA, which leaves out a big percentage, I mean, pretty much, you know, a few million people, actually. At the same time, I mean, I as a union member, I have really good health insurance, but I would go for, I would be willing to give that up to go for Medicare for All, because Medicare for All actually would delink the association with employment in a much more effective way and would help uh, people in, in, in many ways. I mean, many times when we're fighting for contracts, we have to deal with uh, employees, employers who are trying to, uh, you know, take away part of our health insurance or make us pay more for our health insurance. And uh, there, was an imp- there was a study done that showed that Medicare for All would actually be actually cheaper for people. So, I mean, this, this, uh, this need to defend um, the Obamacare is, is important because otherwise people will be left out. Uh, of healthcare right now during the middle of a pandemic, but we we should have our eyes on the prize, and the eyes on the prize is that everybody should have access to healthcare, um, and that's just what civilized nations do. Thank you for those sentiments. And, Appreciate hearing from you, Lisa. And uh, I'll read a comment from Sarah. We've asked for some personal testimony, and Sarah writes. Uh, The Affordable Care Act quite literally saved my life through the expansion of Medicaid. I lost my job in 2008 because of disability. My COBRA ran out a few months before I was eligible for Medi-Cal. took nine years to win my Social Security disability case, and without the care and pharmaceuticals necessary to keep me alive, I very well might not have survived. And here's a comment. Let me go back to you, Julie Robner, from a listener named Joseph who writes, uh, I've always been a supporter of the Affordable Care Act, though I could never understand it. Then recently I heard that the ACA was a program in which the government pays big insurance companies to provide health insurance but does not give them the power to negotiate drug prices. What's so great about this program? Well, that's that's a little bit complicated. Um, the uh, under the ACA, uh, insurers can indeed negotiate drug prices, and they do. Uh, I th- under Medicare, there was a Medicare drug law that was passed in 2003 that didn't give the government power to negotiate drug prices. And obviously, Medicare beneficiaries use a lot of prescription drugs, and there's a lot of people who think that Medicare should have more power to negotiate pres- prescription drug prices, and that might help sort of bring prices down for everyone, although it could also, if prices came down a lot for Medicare uh, beneficiaries, they could go up for people with private insurance. It's it's complicated. You know, our our nation's healthcare system is this sort of um, mess of partly public and partly private. And it's, you know, everybody, this is the where we've ended up with this huge political divide uh, about generally Democrats want more government involvement in healthcare and Republicans want less government involvement in healthcare. And we've ended up with a system that's basically half and half um, and doesn't work very well because, you know, you keep sort of incrementally moving in one direction or the other, but we've been unable to sort of decide which direction as a society we really want to move in. Well, a good way, I think, to highlight that is what we see now as having taken place with respect to reform on drug prices, which the uh, emailer mentioned, the listener mentioned in his email, and that is uh, to bring up the fact that there is on Mitch McConnell's desk a a bill that was passed by the House of Representatives with respect to drug prices, and it sits on his desk, and he talked about it as socialist kind of uh, legislation. You want to comment on that, Julie? 
Yeah, and it's been sitting there. The House passed it several months ago. Mind you, actually, they passed it last year. Now that I think about it, that's right. Um, yeah, it, and it's you know the and there was a Republican, a bipartisan Republican bill in the Senate as well. And Mitch McConnell has refused to even bring that to the floor because not all the Republicans support it. So you know, both parties say they want to do something about prescription drug prices. It's a big problem, even in the midst of the COVID pandemic. It's a big problem, uh, and yet they have not been able to agree. Amongst themselves about how to do that. So, where do you see this ultimately heading? Maybe if we can map out the trajectory of this, Rory Little, um, uh, kind of Texas versus California. <laughs> I look at it one way. Talk about binaries. Um, I, I mean, particularly in terms of the court's uh, decision and what they're likely to render and how things are apt to go. I don't ask you to do too much tea leave reading here, but just talk about really the how things are going to unfold as you see it. Right, we can talk about sort of the process that we know and then we can sort of predict on tea leaves. I do want to say this is really red states versus blue states. It's very much a political partisan fight, uh, California versus Texas. And we should, we should sort of applaud the Solicitor General for the state of California, Michael Mongan, who really did a tremendous job. He was the first lawyer to stand up this morning and he did a great job of explaining exactly how the justices could rule uh, and preserve the Affordable Health Care Act. You know, they'll go into a conference uh, this week, uh, later this week, uh, by phone, and they'll vote and they'll see where the votes are. And then the chief justice, if he's in the majority, will assign the opinion to someone uh, very well might take it himself. Um, and a draft opinion will be circulated uh, and they take them in some order. So this is the second month of argument. There's a number of cases ahead of them. Uh, and then, the, you know, the draft will circulate. Then the dissents will be circulated. All of this is done in secret. That is, nobody can see it. Um, there'll be adjustments made. I don't think you'll see any opinion in this case until at the earliest, January or February. Uh, and if they're really deeply divided, it could go all the way till June. Otherwise, the tradition is the fall arguments are decided in the early part of the spring uh, and they don't go all the way till June. So we'll see something. Uh, and if they uphold the Affordable Health Care Act and really nothing will change, uh, if they strike it down, then many things will change and there'll be a mess. Yeah. And let me read a couple more comments that are coming in. We asked for people to talk about their experiences with the Affordable Care Act. And Lori writes, I'm a self-employed cancer survivor. My cancer was 40 years ago and I have no remaining symptoms or risk factors from it. I was denied insurance over and over again before the Affordable Care Act. Now I'm covered under the Affordable Care Act and I'm terrified that I will no longer be allowed to purchase insurance at any price if the Supreme Court overturns it. And Anna tweets, I've been suffering from a physical disability since I was 10. I lost insurance when I graduated in 2005. Before the Affordable Care Act, I sought treatment abroad where I could afford it. Now I have great doctors who know me and I'm terrified of losing my insurance. A lot of people terrified, Julie Rodner, huh? There are. And, you know, as I think people have been saying all along, this case seemed unlikely from the beginning to result in a complete striking down of the Affordable Care Act. But with the replacement um, of Justice Ginsburg with Justice Barrett, there is a non-zero chance that, that it will happen. I think it seems to be a little bit less post-oral arguments, but we'll have to wait and see. We will wait and see, and we will monitor things as they unfold. And I want to thank you, Julie Robner, for being with us. Julie Rodman, Chief Washington Correspondent with the Kaiser Health News and host of the podcast, What the Health. And thanks to Rory Little, Professor at UC Hastings College of the Law and former attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice. And of course, thank you, our listeners. We wouldn't be here without you. And welcome your thoughts about what you hear on Forum or would like to hear. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. 
For all of us here at KQED Public Radio, please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.